Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. It is Mother's Day today, and mothers wear a lot of hats, right? One person does a lot of different things, and mothers are doctors, right? They're the ones who take care of all of those injuries. A mother is a teacher. Sometimes mom wears the teacher hat, whether she's officially teaching homeschooling or whether she's uh, her, her children go to uh, an outside a school outside the home and she's helping them understand. But also just all along the way, moms moms wear the teacher's hat. They. They also wear the hat of counselor. There's, there's times when we just need to talk to our mom and, and have our mom help us with something. Um, and then sometimes mom wear the law enforcement hat when maybe we don't do what we're supposed to. I, I, I don't know anybody like that with their mom, but just hypothetically, if it ever happened. Uh, and then sometimes, especially when there are more than one, when there's more than one child in the house and, you know, different stories are told and this and that and the other, the mom puts on the judge hat and has to determine, you know, what, what, what's really real here and what's happening. And then sometimes it's just the comforter hat. We do honor our moms today who wear a lot of hats with grace. And we appreciate you. It's interesting, an interesting tie. We're going through the book, the New Testament book of Hebrews here at Harvest. And the passage that we come to today is Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 10 to 18. And in that passage, it lifts up Jesus Christ and the many hats, so to speak, that he wears. He wears a lot of different hats. So let's look together at that passage. Hebrews Chapter 2, we're going to read verses 10 to 18, and then we'll, we'll, we'll walk through and see what it, what it means for us today. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, 
fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, what we're going to study today is this. It's all going to revolve around this one central thought. Jesus was and accomplished infinitely more than what the angels could be or do. We're in a section in Hebrews where the writer is comparing Jesus with angels. Now, today we don't have a lot of dispute about that, about Jesus being greater than angels, but these original readers did. Angels were very, very important in the first century Jewish culture. And so when we first introduced this a couple of weeks ago, we said, you know, what are the things in our culture that we give credence to or more importance to sometimes than God? And whatever it is, Jesus is more. So for them, one of the things was angels. And the writer is making this long extended argument about how much greater he is than, than angels. And last Sunday, we said Jesus was better than angels because he's ruler. He regained rule for humanity. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them rule and dominion over the earth. But sin entered in and that rule was smashed and now the world is a mess. And that dominion has been lost. So if you look around now, you don't see a world that's being under God's rule effectively yet. But what do we see? We do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so that is the first reason in this full long paragraph from verses 5 to 18 about why Jesus is better than angels. There are four things that he is that they're not. There are four things that he does that they don't. And the first one is he is a ruler. And the second one comes right out of this because when the writer says this, that Jesus suffered death, he... He really wanted to elaborate on that because that was a new concept for a lot of these people. And so the second thing that Jesus is and the reason why he's better than angels is because he is Savior. He secured our salvation. Let's look at verse 10 again. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Jesus is called the pioneer of our salvation. Now, in the original language that the New Testament was written in, the very first word is the 11th word in English. It's the word fitting. It starts out fitting or appropriate. Their culture didn't know or accept really a Messiah that would suffer and die. And yet he came to die and it was not only an accident or something, but it was, it was fitting. It was fitting for him to do this. And the second word 
is the word for that not all English translations capture, but the ESV, for instance, does when it starts out by saying for it was fitting. In other words, he's going to ground verse 9 with this next verse, verse 10. He's going to explain why it was appropriate for Jesus to suffer and what that actually meant. Uh, This concept of a suffering Messiah he knew, the writer knew, would be very difficult for them to grasp. So he's going to build on it. And there's several phrases in this uh, verse 10 that help us understand what it means for Jesus to be Savior. One of them uh, is that he would bring many sons and daughters to glory. Why did Jesus become human? Why did he leave heaven and come to earth and and though fully God, live as a human being. It was because he wanted for us, many sons, many daughters of his, to enter into a relationship with him, and he would take us from here to glory. So this is like shorthand for heaven. God is designing to change us and transform us and make us glorious, that's part of the character change. But ultimately, what's the ultimate glory? It's it's living in a perfect place where there's no sin, no sorrow, no death. It's only life and perfection and God, and that is heaven. So this is what he was doing in bringing us to glory. In other words, to get us to heaven, he chose to come here. Because sin is what keeps us out of heaven. Sin is what keeps us separated away from God. And that was committed by human beings. So it had to be the price, the penalty for that, was going to be paid by someone who was human. And that's part of what he did. He was the pioneer of their salvation. He was the leader, the founder even used in secular Greek, of, of, a, of a champion. This is who he was. And, but there's this really, really interesting phrase. They had to make the pioneer perfect through what he suffered. And some of you, when you first read that this morning or before, you might have gone in your mind, you might have struggled a little bit like, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was already perfect. <laughs> In what sense can we say that Jesus was not perfect and so he had to come live on this earth to be made perfect? It makes it sound like he was not perfect yet. So if you were thinking that, if you were thinking in terms of morality, in terms of character, you would have been right. He always has been perfect and he always will be perfect. And he will never change. But what does it mean in this context? Because that's, that's how we understand true language. We understand it in the context in which it is used. The word perfect means to make perfect, to make complete, to finish, to accomplish something, to complete a course. So we, we've got to... We don't want to just take the English word perfect and say, oh, well, it it has to mean moral perfection. It can include that, but it has the idea in Scripture of something that has a course and a plan 
and it gets completed. So, for instance, the same word is translated a little bit differently, but it's the same original word in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul the Apostle says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. In other words, Paul wanted to reach perfection in his task. He wanted to finish the task. He wanted to be perfect in that task and accomplish it. And in the context of Hebrews chapter 2 that we're looking at, verse 10, it does not indicate in any way that Jesus lacked moral perfection. But he had to complete the task that God the Father had given him in order to accomplish salvation. How can Jesus be perfected? How was he perfected? Well, biblically, in to become our Savior, to become our compassionate high priest, he had to become human. That's the way God designed it. That's the way God set it up, that he would be, and we're going to see a lot about high, him being a high priest in this letter. But to be a compassionate high priest, he had to understand what we went through. To cover and forgive the sins that humans committed, he had to walk on this earth and make the sacrifice himself. He had to become obedient to the will of God the Father so that he would follow it all the way through to completion. So there's a commentator, Leon Morris, an older commentator, who makes a, a really good analogy here that, I, that helps me with it and hopefully it helps you. And he talks about a flower that buds. He says, suffering introduce a new perfection a perfection of testedness. There's one perfection of the bud and another of the flower. It's interesting. Yesterday, Tish and I got to go up to see a part of her Mother's Day weekend was going to see one of our sons that lives uh, up in Winston-Salem. And we hung out with them in the afternoon and went to Rinalda Gardens where there are just so many flowers all all through the gardens of all different kinds and sorts. And it was a beautiful day and we got to see it. And it's interesting. You look at some flowers and you see them before they bloom. You see the bud and it just looks perfect, right? But it's not fully bloomed yet. And then you give it time and it goes through all that it goes through. The sunshine and the rain and the nutrients and the weathering and the suffering. And then over time... It's going to bloom into a perfect bloom. So there's a difference between the bud and the flower. They're both perfect. It's just that time proves the perfection. Morris says, in the same way, there's a perfection involved in actually having suffered, which is, and which is not implied any previous perfection. It casts no doubt on the previous perfection, but it adds something to it. Does that make sense? And I, I think that's a good analogy for how Jesus was made perfect. He was already perfect morally, but being equal with God and coming to do a task to die on the cross and pay for our sins, that was something he was going to have to walk through all the steps of obedience and suffering to reach and be made 
perfect in that sense, completing the task. Second, or second for today, but number three, the third of the four reasons Jesus is better than angel is because he is brother. He's brother. He brings us sinners into an intimate relationship with God. And if you've read Hebrews chapter 1 about how he was the final revelation from God and he was eternal and he created everything and you go, he's also my brother? It really becomes amazing. Verses 11 to 13 show us that Jesus who became human to bring many sons and daughters to glory indeed shares our identity, making us part of the same family. Verse 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now, who is the one that makes people holy? That's Jesus. Who are those who are being made holy? That's Christians. We are not perfect at the moment of salvation. We are positionally, but not practically. But that's what the Christian life is all about. You receive Christ by faith, and you're forgiven of your sins, and then throughout your life, you grow to be more and more like Christ. This is what we call sanctification. It's the process of becoming like Christ. So he is the one that makes people holy, and Christians are those that are being made holy. That's what the tenses here stress, that it's an ongoing process of being made more and more like him until ultimately one day when he returns or we pass away and go into his presence, then we'll be fully 100% sanctified with no more sin ever. Verse 12, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Now, where did he say that? Well, that's a quote from Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. It's once again, all through the book of Hebrews, we're going to see the writer going back to the Old Testament and finding passages that had a meaning in the Old Testament, but the meaning gets rounded out and and filled out coming into the New Testament because all of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ. So what's Psalm 22 about? Now, one thing that happens when the Old Testament writer or when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament is they aren't only just quoting necessarily the verse that is actually said, but when they point to a verse, it is pointing to the entire context that it was originally said. So Psalm 22, this is verse 22, but many of you will know one of the verses probably by heart If you go back to the first verse of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Do you recognize those words? (laughs) That's what Jesus cried from the cross. It was a cry of anguish and it was a cry of desperation. And that's what it was in the psalm. It started out as a cry of desperation. And it started out with this this alienation, this sense of alienation from God. But then it ultimately came back 
to verse 22 to, to pray. So the, the, the isolation and the desolation and the desperation becomes worship and it becomes praise at, at, at the, 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 in the assembly, at the awareness of who God is and the family that God has put together. And that's what happens. The psalm moves from the sobering cry, the sobering reality of Jesus' crucifixion, that he could quote that. And yet, as he quoted it, it, there was always the view that this wasn't it, (laughs) that the cross wasn't the last act of the play. There was going to be another act of the play, at least a couple more acts. But the next one was going to be the resurrection. <laughs> and that's what happens, that it's it's glory and it's wonderful and it's powerful. Now, in the Old Testament, the assembly, that was the assembled gathered, uh, gathering of worshipers among the Jewish people. But now it's the church. <laughs> it's the church. It's It's the gathered people of God to worship. And we declare this. This is an amazing truth because Jesus brought us into his family because Jesus calls us brothers and we rightly translate brothers and sisters. But in the original, it says brothers because there was a sense of of the rights that sons had. We're going to get to that in a minute. We are his brothers and sisters. We are made family members with Christ. Please don't take that for granted. I admit I do sometimes, right? That's one of those kind of Christian language things that we, that we tend to say. But if you think about the person that's holding the entire universe in existence right now, the person who created everything, the person that's eternal, that's better than the angels, better than everyone and everything, and is God. And he's like, you know what? Why don't you come be in my family? Why don't you come be my brother and my sister? This is amazing. And it, it happened because he was willing to be human. That's what this passage is driving out, his humanness. Now, verse 13 quotes from another Old Testament passage in Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. Verse 13, again, I will put my trust in him. That's Isaiah eight seventeen. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. And then the very next verse And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. That's the next verse in Isaiah 8, verse 18. Here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. In the 8th century B.C., more than 800 years before this was written, Syria and Samaria were on the attack And they came right up to the city of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was about to fall. Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. That was the capital. God's people had a capital city, and and it was a very important city, and it it was just about to fall. But Isaiah, the prophet, spoke up in Isaiah 8, 17, and said, I believe in God. 
I believe God is going to deliver. I will wait for the Lord. Isaiah is a type of Jesus. Just like Isaiah trusted in, in God, so did Jesus. And then in verse 18, Isaiah mentions his two sons. I'm not going to go back to Isaiah and read it. There's long, long names, but the, but they're signs and symbols. So the two sons that Isaiah had, he named his son. These, these families that we dedicated this morning, their children to the Lord, they all named those children intentionally. There was a reason behind why they named their children that. Well, Isaiah named his children and the two names of his son. Remember, he's living in an, in an era when God's people are under attack and they're about to be destroyed. And what does he name his sons? Well, the first one means swift is the booty, sweet, uh, speedy is the prey. And the second one means a remnant will return. In other words, he believed that God was going to protect them and that even if they were taken into captivity, they were going to come back. They were signs. They were a type of Christ and his brothers. Now, what's a type? A type is a, it's a divinely purposed historical illustration, something in the Old Testament that corresponds to something that is yet to come. And as I mentioned earlier, all of the Old Testament points forward to Christ in some ways. But here specifically, Hebrews understands the words that Isaiah spoke in the Old Testament about his two children to look forward to the words that Jesus would speak about his children, Christians, believers, Followers. Now think about this paragraph and the intimate relationship with God that it's picturing for us. Jesus brought sinful human beings into a relationship with himself, into a relationship with God. People whose lives are not together, people whose lives experience pain and brokenness. And what does he call us? He calls us, in one instance, his brothers and sisters. That's pretty close. He also calls us his children. That's also a very, very close relationship. I know the mothers that are here today, there's, you may love children generally, but there's something about those that are yours, right? They're, they're your children. There's a family relationship that you have with them. As a father, there's a family relationship with your children. Then you think about brothers and sisters. And again, we live in a broken world, so not all of our relationships with fathers or children or brothers or sisters are what we would want. But in general and overall and the way it's intended is that there's an extra special closeness that happens in families. And that's what this passage is helping us understand. He is better than angels because he is ruler, he is savior, he is brother, and there's one more. He is high priest. As high priest, he liberates us, he helps us, he makes atonement for us. I'll explain that word in a minute. And he strengthens us. I want you to watch for those four things as we walk through these last few verses of the paragraph. First of all, he liberates us. Verse 
14. Since the children have flesh and blood, we're the children, those are the followers of Christ, right? Since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So somebody call out, look in this verse and say, who is this identifying that has the power of death? Who does the verse say has the power of death? Verse 14. The devil. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? I mean, because God has all the power of life and death, right? So why would the writer of Hebrews say, well, the devil has the power of death? I mean, it's very, very clear that that's what he is saying here. Warren Wiersbe helps answer that question. I'm just going to quote him. I was reading and studying it. It's a simple answer in a way, but it's a profound answer. He says this, Satan can only do that which is permitted by God. And he gives verses for all these things. But because Satan is the author of sin and sin brings death, Romans 6, 23, in this sense, Satan exercises power in the realm of death. So you see, it took Jesus' death to break the power of the devil. This world would have no death of any sort if it weren't for sin. Adam and Eve were created and they would have lived eternally and perfectly If they had not sinned, but when they sinned, when they chose to disobey God, sin brought death. And who was right there spurring them on to sin? (laughs) It was the devil, right? And now the right of Hebrews can say, for this moment, for this era, right now, there was the power of death that was given to the devil. And yet it's broken, (laughs) He is not the final answer. He is not the final victory. It might be a 15-round boxing match, and it might look like uh, the wrong side is getting pounded, but there's going to be a knockout. (laughs) And actually, the knockout happened at the cross when Jesus said, I am going to die. And that's what this verse says. He shared in our humanity so that by his death... By Jesus' death, his death breaks the power of the one who has power over death, the devil. And what's the result in verse 15? He frees all those whose lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. There's a short story you might be familiar with called Appointment in Samara. In Baghdad, there was a servant who lived in Baghdad and he went to the marketplace to buy some some goods for his master. And he heard this noise behind him, and he turned, and in, this, in the story he looks, and it's death. And, and it's death is making a kind of a scary uh, uh, motion, and the servant gets scared thinking that death is coming to get him. So he runs back home to his, to his master and says, Master, I just... I just saw a terrible thing in the market. I I saw death. 
I would like, can I take one of the horses and can I, can I ride off to Samara and get away from death? And he said, sure. And so later that afternoon, the master goes into the marketplace and, and he sees death. And he says, what are you doing here? He said, my servant saw you and was afraid that you were after him. And, and you were making some kind of threatening motion towards him. He said, well, I wasn't making a threatened motion. I was just surprised to see him because I have an appointment with him tomorrow in Samara. And you know, all of us have that same appointment. We live our life. We cannot escape it. Life is wonderful in many ways, and it's joyful, and there are a lot of great, wonderful things. But there's always this shadow out there of death, right? And we all know that we are destined to die. There is, that's the world we live in. That's the broken world we live in. But though that may seem to be bad news, I've got good news for you today. (laughs) That power of death has been broken. When we talk about Jesus' death, it's for salvation. And it, and it, his death, his burial, his resurrection proved who he was. And he, he conquered death for us. So we don't have to live under that slavery. I, I've said it many times to people, and you might have too, as I've been in the hospital with people and seen terrible diseases. And when I've seen families lose loved ones and all of this, and I've, I've said something to people like, You know, I I don't know how people do this without the Lord. I I really don't. Where's the hope? Where's the assurance? And yet we have him. We don't have to live without him. Verse 16 continues it, and it adds another one that he helps. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Jesus didn't come to help the angels he came to help us. That's a rare word, that word, help, in the New Testament. is used in Matthew 14 where Jesus extends his hand. It actually, the, the same tra- translated, helps. He extended his hand to help Peter when he was on the, the sea. In Mark 8, he extended his hand to heal a blind man. In Luke 14, he extended his hand to heal a paralyzed Person In Hebrews 8, verse 9, God takes Israel by the hand and leads them through the wilderness. And in this passage that we're looking at this morning, he extends his hand and helps us by taking our hand. Verse 17, another thing he does is he makes atonement for us. For this reason, the reason he's just talking about, that he's here to help, that he's here to suffer, he's here to die. For this reason, he had to be made like them because we're human. And we, we live under this fear and slavery of death, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He's merciful. That means he's sympathetic. He is faithful. He's reliable. There's never a time that he won't come through. Make atonement. What is, what is, what is atonement? What is this talking about? Make atonement means to, to satisfy God's wrath. Because God is holy and sin cannot be in his presence. 
Sin must be satisfied. That penalty for sin must be satisfied. And that's what make atonement is. It, it only appears one other time in the verb form in, in the New Testament. That's in Luke chapter 18. Jesus is telling a story about a tax collector, uh, two men that are praying and it, and one of them is a tax collector and he just looks up to God, uh, well, it says he, he wouldn't look up to heaven, but he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me. That's the same verb there. It's, it's about mercy. It's about showing mercy. The noun form is found in Romans chapter 3. Verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So here's the point. We all have sinned and justice must be done. Sin must be paid for. Even in our imperfect world, our justice system, if somebody breaks into a car and steals something or robs a convenience store, justice is going to have to be done. I know that because I watched Judge Steve Harvey the other night. Just kidding. Justice has to be done. There has to be a payment for it. And when we sin, there has to be a payment for it. The payment is right now, it's separation from God. And it would... We would always be separated from God for eternity in hell if there had not been a payment made, the payment on the cross, when Jesus said, I will take their place. I will become the sacrifice of atonement. That's what this verse is saying. That's how we're made right with God. That's how we're bought back or redeemed. Christ is the sacrifice of atonement. And then finally, in verse 18, he strengthens us. He strengthens us. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, we saw the word helped a couple of verses earlier. This is a different original word for it. This word help means to run to someone's side quickly and give them help. When Jesus lived on this earth, he was tempted. He suffered when he was tempted. And when we come to Hebrews chapter 4 in a few weeks here, um, we'll elaborate on the question of how was Jesus tempted like we are, you know, and how real was the temptation and all of that. We, We can't go into it this morning. But for now, let's just note and let's celebrate the fact that as a human being, he lived as a human being, fully God and fully human. He was also fully tempted. And because he suffered when he was tempted, he was hungry. He was tired. He was thirsty. He was tempted. He experienced what we as human beings experience because he did all of those things He can relate to us and he can know that we're tempted and he can help us when we're tempted. That's what this verse is saying. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was and accomplished 
infinitely more than what the angels could be or do. Angels are powerful beings, but they never lived as humans. They, they never understood temptation. They, they, we, did, we don't establish a familial relationship with them, but with Christ we do. So none of this would have been possible apart from the incarnation where Jesus became fully human. That's what we mean when we say incarnation. It's fully God, a being who's fully God, also for 33 years in that moment becoming fully human. I think we often overlook the humanity of Jesus. We rightly talk about his deity, the fact that he's God and he's exalted But part of it is he was also human and he made himself human for us. So think about the benefits that gives us, uh, most importantly, salvation for those who receive him and follow him by faith. Because it required a living human life, deliverance from the power of death and the fear of death, help in temptation. There was a missionary named Paul London who spoke at a missions conference. He told about an event that happened in the village in Africa where he served. Seemed in that village, as probably in many, the, the strongest man in the village is the chief. And the chief wore the big ceremonial headdress and heavy ornamental robes. And in that place, water was very scarce, and they had to dig deep in the ground to get water. So they would dig wells that would go a 100 feet down, up to a 100 feet down in the ground. They weren't the kind of wells that we think about, nicely constructed and large. It was kind of narrow and kind of just barely enough room for one or maybe two people to go down into the shaft. And they they dug them so deep... uh, so that the water wouldn't get poisoned, so that their their enemies wouldn't come at night and and steal water from them. So it was it was a pretty big deal. And w- to get down in the well, they they put slats in the wall. So that's the way you, to climb. They had to physically a man would physically climb a hundred feet down into the well using those slats like steps. Down, 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 down. And one day in this tribe, a man went down to fill up the heavy skin of water to bring back up to the top for the tribe to have. But he fell and broke his leg and he was at the bottom of the well. And nobody was strong enough to go down there and bring the man back up. So they came to the chief. And the chief went to the spot where the well was and the chief took off his headdress and took off his ceremonial robes and he climbed down to the bottom of the well and picked the man up and put him on his shoulders and brought him all the way back to the top, rescuing the man. And London told that story and said this. He did something that nobody else in the tribe could do. This is what Jesus did for us. He came down 
to rescue us by taking the weight of sin on himself. He put aside his heavenly honors just as the chief put aside his headdress and robe in order to save us. But when the chief took off his headdress and robe, did he stop being the chief? No, of course not. In the same way, when Jesus made himself nothing and put aside his heavenly glory, he never ceased being God. That's what Hebrews 2 is talking about. This fully God became fully human for us. He accomplished infinitely more than what the angels could be or do. So here's three quick responses as we wrap it up this morning. How do you respond to a Jesus like that? Number one, receive him. I don't know where you are, if you're here in person or listening online. I don't know if this makes sense. I hope it does. I've tried to give you what the Bible teaches about human beings and our plight and God and what he has done to save us and rescue us. And it starts, we're not talking... We're not trying to get people to become a little bit better people. You just stop sinning. or You just start giving money to the poor. Or you get baptized. No, we're talking about admitting you're, you're down at the bottom of the well and you can't get out. And you need a Savior. And His name is Jesus because of what He did on the cross. Receive Him. Secondly, reverence Him. Yes, He became human. Yes, He got hungry and thirsty and tempted. But he was still always and is God. And then third, live for him. Live for him. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.